Praise Yahweh, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. This will be part 3 of our From Passover to Easter series. The Bible says, King James Version, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James the brother of John with a sword, and because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread, and when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. In the last lesson, I concluded in my studies that Acts chapter 12, verse 4 is talking about what we now call the Passover. The Greek word there is pasha. It's a transliteration of the Aramaic form of the Hebrew word Pesach. And I also concluded that Easter was a legitimate English rendering for Pasha back at the time that the King James Bible was translated. Christians from the 8th to the 16th centuries took a word that meant dawn or sunrise, or we might say metaphorically resurrection, and they coupled it with the resurrection of Christ. And since the resurrection of Christ is intimately associated with the death of Christ, the word Easter came to be associated with the Pasha. Now, it's taken me 20 years to understand this. So if somebody in here doesn't get it yet, that's fine. If you disagree with Brother Matthew. I closed last week with William Tyndale's 1526 English translation of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, where he writes that Christ, our Esther lamb, is sacrificed for us. No doubt, William Tyndale was talking about Christ being the antitype of the Pesach lamb in Exodus chapter 12. But he wrote in 1526, or in the early 1500s, he wrote Esther lamb because that is how the word Easter was used in his day. Now, I'd like to begin today by looking at a couple more times that William Tyndale used the word Easter in his translation as a reference to the Pesach what we now call the Passover. The first is in Matthew 26, verses 1 through 2. Some of the words are going to look different, and this is because it's not technically what we would call Old English, but it is older English than what we speak now and read now. So some of the words are spelt different, but I've put them on the screen exactly as they appear in Tyndale's New Testament, early 1500s. Matthew 26, 1 through 2, and it came to pass when... Yeshua had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days shall be Esther, and the Son of Man shall be delivered to be crucified. Now, did William Tyndale believe that Yeshua was speaking about Easter Sunday here, or the Passover? Obviously, the Passover, because this is pre-resurrection, this is before Yeshua ever died. Yet Tyndale calls it Easter, and that's because in his day, Easter was a synonym for the Pesach, or what we now call the Passover. Mark 14, verse 12 is even more telling. It says, On the first day of sweet bread, when men offered ye Pascal lamb, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Easter lamb? Now it gets no clearer than this. Tyndale interchanges Pascal lamb, which is an obvious carryover from the Greek word Pasha. He interchanges that with Esther lamb. As a matter of fact, out of the 29 times that the Greek New Testament uses the word Pasha, 
Tyndale translates it as some form of Easter 26 times. The other three times Tyndale writes Pascal or Pascal Lamb. But Tyndale was also the man to coin the English compound word Passover. Did you know that nobody on the earth called the Pesach feast Passover until William Tyndale coined the word in the Old Testament portion of his English translation of the Bible. And then it caught on, and now we're, what, 400 plus years later, almost 500 years later, and that's commonplace for the, the Pesach feast of Exodus 12 to call it the Passover. When translating the Torah portion of the Old Testament, Tyndale used his newly coined English term Passover, but it took a while before it caught on in English translations of the Bible. English translations after him, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, all in the early 1500s, and even the first edition of the Geneva Bible, the 1557 Geneva New Testament, continued to use Easter predominantly in the New Testament to describe the Pesach. None of these Bibles were talking about what we call Easter Sunday. They were using the word Easter to describe the Pesach. As a matter of fact, Miles Coverdale, in his 1535 translation of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, he translates the word Pesach as Easter in the Old Testament. Sometimes he'll use Passover. Sometimes he'll use Easter. Even in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, he talks about the ancient Israelites eating the Easter lamb. Obviously, Miles Coverdale is not talking about Easter Sunday. He's talking about the Pesach when he writes the word Easter. It was not until the 1560 Geneva Bible, which is the second edition of the Geneva Bible, the Bible that was used by the pilgrims. In that Bible, we have an English translation that used Passover predominantly in the New Testament as a translation of the Greek word Pasha. Then we have the 1568 Bishop's Bible. This was the Bible that was used in the Church of England prior to the 1611 King James Version. The Bishop's Bible did not use the word Easter predominantly, but it did retain it in three times in the New Testament. This means the Bishop's Bible New Testament contained the word Passover 26 times and the word Easter three times. One of those three times was Acts chapter 12 verse 4. And the other two are in John 11, verse 55, which I have here on the screen. It says, And the Jews, or the Jews' Easter, was nigh at hand. And many went out of the country up to Jerusalem, that's Jerusalem, before the Easter to purify themselves. Now, it's clear that the use of Easter here is a reference to the Pesach feast, what we call the Passover. It's the feast that the Judahites would keep in Jerusalem. What's interesting is that when you keep reading to the end of John 11 in the Bishop's Bible, in John 12, verse 1, the Bishop's Bible says six days before the Passover. Once again, it's easy to see that they were using Easter and Passover as synonymous terms. Now, I realize that in today's language and culture, over 400 years after the Bishop's Bible or the King James Version, We do not use Easter and Passover synonymously today. As culture changes, language changes. 
And this is why the New King James Version, at least the 1979 New Testament edition of that Bible, reads Passover in Acts 12 and 4. It says Herod was waiting till after Passover to bring Peter forth to the people. Is the New King James Version wrong? No, not at all. Does it contradict Easter in the 1611 King James Version? I used to say yes. Now that I have more knowledge, the answer is no. So long as you understand the culture and the language use back in the 16th century A.D. and even long before that. Let me give you a couple of examples here to kind of help you see what I'm saying. Maybe you still say, Brother Matthew, this is strange. And believe me, it is strange because it pretty much has to, you have to wipe away everything that you thought was right and go back to the drawing board. There are many words in the old King James Version that don't mean the same thing now that they meant then. It doesn't mean that they're mistranslations because they were accurate words used back at that time. For instance, in Psalm 47 verse 2, in the King James Bible it says, Yahweh Most High is terrible. Now that would not be a good translation today because the word terrible today means something different than terrible meant back then. Terrible in the 16th and 17th century meant solemn awe and revered. You know, like people are, they have great reverence for Yahweh and they, they, they tremble and they fear Yahweh. It doesn't mean like, oh man, that was just a terrible meal or something like that. See, as language changes, as culture changes, language changes. Another one is meat. Have you ever studied the offerings in the book of Leviticus and come across Leviticus chapter 2 and you read about the meat offering, but there's no meat in it? And new Bibles, newer translations, call it the grain offering. Did the King James translators just have a blurb in their mind? Did they not know? No. The word meat in 1611 meant food in general, oftentimes grain or bread. And so therefore it was an accurate way to translate at that time, as culture changes, language changes, and now we would call it the grain offering because that would be more accurate in the culture and language that we speak nowadays. So I think the New King James Version is more accurate in 2018 by saying Passover in the 1970s, I should say. But the King James Version was not incorrect by saying Easter in 1611 because that's a way that the word Easter was used in early history. I recently came across the West Saxon Gospels while I was studying this subject. This translation of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, dates back to around 1000 A.D., about 600 years prior to the King James Bible. And the language in these Gospels is the language of southern England at the time, and it's what we would call Old English, true Old English. And as you can hopefully see by looking at a page here from the Gospel of Luke, there is no way that someone who speaks and reads only modern English can read these Gospels. It's much too primitive and different from American English today. But what we see when you examine these Gospels, what we see is there is a uniform translation of the Greek word Pasha into English as Easter. 26 times the word Pasha is used in the Greek New Testament Gospels, Matthew through John. And all 26 times in the West Saxon Gospels, 
they translate it as Easter. One example is Luke 2 verse 41 where it says that Yeshua's parents went to Jerusalem every year for the Pasha. I think we know that that's the Passover. But the West Saxon Gospels say that Yeshua's parents went to Jerusalem for the Easter. Now, Yeshua's parents were not going to Jerusalem to keep Easter Sunday. That's silly, isn't it? And that's not what the West Saxon Gospels are talking about. It's not that the people that translated this Bible don't have any intelligence. When they used the word Easter back then, it was in reference to the Pesach feast. These old southern England Gospels show us that the word Easter was known and used for Pesach and Pasha hundreds of years before the word Passover was ever coined by William Tyndale. And the reality is that the word Easter is an older word for Pesach than the word Passover. Now, I think that Passover is a better translation now due to our modern cultural understanding that Easter is something entirely different from Passover. Okay, But back in the 11th to 16th century cultures, Easter was commonplace as a reference to the Pesach in Exodus 12. So to say then that it's a mistranslation in the 1611 King James Version, like I have said for many years, that is a blatant error. And to say that it is a pagan word is also a blatant error. I'm sure that it is an error that will continue to be promoted mostly by Hebrew roots, Torah keeping groups. But I'm not interested and we shouldn't be interested in trying to appease any particular group or people. We just want to study the Bible and as Yahweh teaches us and as we study biblical and archaeological and historical points we want to receive them as he works on us from time to time. Uh, honestly, I never thought that I would be preaching this right now. I mean, I believed it for, for 20 years on this. I changed on something else after I believed it for 15 years. And you believe something and you tell somebody something one way and then lo and behold, wow, I was wrong. And you have to change. I've often told people I have no problem with changing on anything got to see it, I've got to be able to prove it, and then I change. So I'm thankful that Yahweh has allowed me to change on this. Now, I would like to switch gears here, same subject, but just switch gears, and I would like to talk about Yeshua the Son. Not the S-O-N Son, but the S-U-N Son. Now, I know that sounds scary right from the big, right from the top, but I want to just ask you to don't answer a matter before you hear it, and listen to uh, what the scriptures have to say. I want to use the remaining time in this lesson to deal with the sunrise and the dawn symbology in relation to our Messiah. Easter is a German word that means sunrise or dawn, referencing the direction that the sun rises in, the east, Easter. But the word Easter was not used back in the earliest centuries A.D. Easter is a later Germanic word, it's a Germanic word that Anglo-Saxon Christians would use because what they did is they saw the rising of the sun in the east as a picture of the Messiah being the light of the world and rising from the dead, going from darkness to light. 
Now, even though the word Easter did not come about until around 700 years after the time of our Messiah, Christians from very early on saw the sunrise as a picture of Yeshua and specifically as a picture of His resurrection. And it was not because they were sun worshipers. It was not. It stemmed from them understanding that the sun, S-U-N, was the great light that the Heavenly Father created and ordained in the book of Bereshith or Genesis. And that Yahweh established His timekeeping, or we say His calendar, by. They saw this great creation of Yahweh, the S-U-N Son, as a wonderful depiction and type of Christ, and it had zero to do with paganism. It was all based on Holy Scripture. Now, this is new to me as well, but I will assure you, it is extremely biblical. Let me show you. There is Old Testament precedent for this in the fact that Yahweh the Father is referenced as the S-U-N, Son, in Psalm 84, verse 11, where the Bible says, For King James, for the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is a son and a shield. Yahweh will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, commentator Albert Barnes, one of my favorite commentators, he says on this verse, Quote, the sun gives light, warmth, and beauty to the creation, so God is the source of light, joy, and happiness to the soul. End of quote. So there is one verse that references Yahweh as the sun. Obviously not literally. It's a metaphor. It's something to teach us about Yahweh. Same thing with shield. Also, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, I believe it's referencing Father Yahweh again as the rising sun. In saying this, listen to these key words. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of Yahweh is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But Yahweh shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. So Yahweh the Father here is symbolized as the rising bright sun, S-U-N. And I will show in this lesson that Yeshua the Messiah, who is an extension of Yahweh the Father, is also symbolized as the sun, shining the glorious light of His Father. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, a very deep Christological chapter in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that the sun is the brightness of the Almighty's glory, and the express image of His person. So, we will begin looking at Yeshua, the S-U-N Son, in the Old Testament with a prophecy about our Messiah. From the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. King James Version, I'm still reading out of. For, behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. And notice that, the day burn. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So that's, that's the effects of the day that cometh. To the wicked, it's not good. But what about to those that fear the name of Yahweh? Verse 2, But unto you that fear my name 
shall the sun, that is the S-U-N, the Hebrew word is shemesh, the sun of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Notice it says the S-U-N of righteousness. If somebody was reading that to you in a service and they just said the sun of righteousness will arise, you might automatically think S-O-N, but that's not what the Hebrew says. It's the shemesh. It's, it's the orb that Yahweh created. And then it uses the masculine pronoun his when speaking of healing in his wings. And the wings here are not the reference to the wings of a bird, but wings means an edge or an extremity or a border or a corner. As a matter of fact, it's the same word used for the borders or the corners of a man's robe or tunic. In the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word wings is kraspadon, hearkening back to Numbers 15, 37 through 41, where the tassels are worn on the border, Greek kraspadon, of one's garment. Now this fits nicely with the place in the Gospels in Matthew 9, verse 20, where there was a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and she had spent much, much money on doctors to heal her. And she said, if I could just touch the hem of this man's garment, I know that I will be made whole. I know that I will be healed. And the word hem, H-E-M in English, is the Greek word kraspadon. And it refers to the tassel that was hanging on the wing or the border of Yeshua's robe. See, the son of righteousness, the S-U-N of righteousness, he arose for this woman with healing in his tassels or in his wings. Now, is it pagan because an Old Testament prophecy links the Messiah to the Son, the S-U-N? Of course not. Remember, the Son was created by Yahweh. It's an essential part of His timekeeping in the heavens, mentioned in Genesis 1, 14-18. It is the greater of the two great lights. The Holy Spirit of Yahweh inspired the prophet Malachi to depict the coming Messiah as the rising S-U-N. And what direction does the sun rise in? In the east, or we might say in the Easter. We should not allow heathen sun worship to detract us from the original pure creation of the sun. Satan has always attempted to mimic the true. And a counterfeit always resembles the true. It always looks like the original. So it should not surprise us to see Satan using the sun, the S-U-N, as a deity or using the sun to symbolize false deities. The adversary does this in order to distract us from the true S-U-N, Yahweh, the Father, which shows us His light in Yeshua, the S-U-N of righteousness, Malachi 4, verse 2. I heard a radio broadcast one time where this Christian pastor was talking about Islam. And he was saying that the Muslims were moon worshipers because they had the crescent moon on top of their mosques. And I knew better. And I was thinking, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And a Muslim man called in to the program. And he said, sir, do you know why the crescent moon is on top of our mosque? And the Christian pastor says, well, tell me. He said, sir, it represents our calendar. 
we observe the lunar calendar. We do not worship the moon. That represents our calendar. Now, I do not believe that Islam is the true faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I disagree with them on key points. But that does not mean that we are allowed to be dishonest and accuse them of something that they're not doing. They're not moon worshippers, brothers and sisters. I've been accused of being a moon worshipper. I had a long pamphlet sent to me one time that said I was a moon worshipper. I've still got it at the house. Why? Because I observe the Sabbath by the lunar cycle. Doesn't mean I'm a moon worshipper. That's just the calendar. Matter of fact, it's very biblical. Psalm 104.19, he appointed the moon for the Moedim, the appointments. So my point is this, is that just because a heathen might worship the sun, moon, and stars, which is condemned, Deuteronomy 4.19, if you want a reference for that, we're not to worship or pay homage to the celestial bodies as though they are deities, as though they are Yahweh. No, they're creations of Yahweh, and they're beautiful creations of Yahweh that he has designed for a specific purpose, but their purpose is not for us to bow down and to worship them. But one of the purposes of the celestial bodies is to tell us when to come and worship our Heavenly Father. That's his timekeeping devices up in the heavens. So the sun, moon, and stars are abused by heathens, and they're used in false ways by heathens, but that doesn't mean that they cannot be used in a proper manner. Never allow, I've said this before in other sermons, never allow the abuse of something good to turn you away from its proper use. And I could take that in several different directions, but in this one, just because we see somebody that is involved in ancient sun worship or in modern sun worship, that doesn't mean we can no longer use the S-U-N sun in its biblical parameters. It's the same thing, I mentioned this before, I'm veering off of my notes a little bit, but it's worth telling. It's the same thing for the rainbow. A lot of times you will see the depiction or the symbol of a rainbow on the back of someone's car and they will either be, well, they'll be a homosexual. You might call them lesbian if it's of the female sort, okay? Does that mean we cannot use the rainbow for the intention that Yahweh created and ordained it? Not at all. It doesn't matter what they do with that symbol. There's, there's still an original purity with that symbol. Yahweh set the bow in the sky to remind us that he would never flood the earth again. It's a beautiful promise that Yahweh has given us with that rainbow. So don't let the abuse of something turn you away from the proper use. So if by some chance, and I don't have this on the back of my, of my van, but if you see me pull up next Sabbath with a big rainbow over the back, and Genesis, Genesis chapter 8, whatever the text is, you should not say, well, Brother Matthew shouldn't have that rainbow on the back of his van. Brother Matthew's turning into one of them liberal preachers. No, what I'm doing is I'm trying to restore. <laughs> I've preached on that subject before. You guys know that, right? What I would be doing is trying to restore the original purity of that rainbow. And if I came across a homosexual man or woman which don't be afraid of them, witness to them. It's no different than an adulterer, a Sabbath breaker, someone that hates somebody in their heart. It's no different. Witness to them. Share the gospel with them. Be kind to them. Don't be ugly to them. Witness to them. Okay? So explain to them, look, this is the original intention of the rainbow. 
I know that you have taken it for this, but that's not what Yahweh, the Creator, intended it for. So you see what I'm saying? It's the same thing with the sun or the moon. We don't we don't worship the moon. We use it to tell time. We don't worship the S-U-N sun. We use it to tell time. Okay? So, got off on a little, little tangent there. I got off on a rabbit trail. I like to say it's okay to get off on a rabbit trail so long as when you catch the rabbit, you don't eat the rabbit. Amen? <laughs> So, I want to link Malachi 4 verse 2 with another prophecy from the mouth of Zechariah the priest, which was the father of John the baptizer. Now, if you know the story in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant with this baby. And Zechariah, when the angel came to him and told him there as he was doing his priestly duties, the angel told him what was going to happen and Zechariah said, my wife is old and she's bearing. And so the angel said, because you did not have belief, I will close up your mouth and you will not be able to speak until a future time. And so Zechariah came out after performing the duties in the, in the temple and he couldn't speak. He motioned with his hands. made motions with his lips. And it wasn't until the eighth day of his little baby boy's life, when people thought he was going to be named Zechariah after his father. And Zechariah motioned for a tablet and he wrote on it, his name shall be Yohanan. We say John, that's English versions. That's, nobody ever called him John, okay? His name was Yohanan, which means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh was very gracious to Elizabeth by giving her that son. And John the baptizer was a wonderful man. And so when, when Zechariah wrote that, immediately his mouth opened and his tongue was loosed and he could speak again. And he gave a prophecy. The Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to prophesy. So when Zechariah is speaking, he's speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit of Yahweh. And Zechariah said that his son, Yohanan, would be a prophet of the Most High and he would go before the face of the Lord, I believe that's a reference to Yahweh the Father, to prepare his ways. And John would give knowledge of Yahweh's salvation unto the people by the remission of their sins, and then he says this in his prophecy. Listen, watch this carefully. He says, Through the tender mercy of our Almighty, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Zechariah says that the day spring from on high hath visited us and it gives light to them that sit in darkness. Remember, he's prophesying under the influence of the Spirit of Yahweh. Now, the word day spring in Luke 178 is the Greek word anatole, which is defined by various Greek lexicons as a rising of light, dawn, east, the rising of the sun and the stars. Anatole is found ten times in the Greek New Testament. And in the King James Bible, it is translated into English only one time as day spring. And the other nine times, the word Anatole is translated in English with the word east. Why east? Because that is the direction where the sun rises. 
Matter of fact, the New International Version in Luke 178 says, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. English Standard Version says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, day spring in the King James Bible is a beautiful, eloquent translation in Luke 178, but it could have just as easily read, whereby the east from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness. If you make cross-references in your Bible, cross-reference Malachi 4 verse 2 with Luke 178. Brother Matthew believes they're talking about the same thing. The Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, is Yeshua the Messiah. He is the day spring from on high, sent by the tender mercies of Father Yahweh. In Matthew 17, 1 through 2, King James Version, or 1 through 3, we read this. And after six days, this is later on in Yeshua's ministry, Yeshua taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moshe and Eliyahu talking with the Messiah. What a sight to behold. Another gospel says it was a vision of the finality of the kingdom of Yahweh. It's beautiful. I believe that Moshe represents the law of Yahweh and Eliyahu, Navi, the prophet Elijah, represents the prophets. And then, of course, Yeshua is the culmination of everything. So the sun, the S-U-N, is a creation of Yahweh that brings brightness to the earth when it rises. So also the son of Yahweh, the S-O-N, brings spiritual brightness to the people of the earth when he is born in Bethlehem throughout his ministry and when he resurrected from death. And after Yeshua was resurrected from death, when was the empty tomb found? Mark 16 verse 2 says, And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing pagan about that. That's very biblical. That's when the women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, according to Mark 16.1, that's when they found the empty tomb, the tomb where their master was placed on preparation day. And then the Sabbath came. And then early in the morning, John says, while it was yet dark, they came to the sepulcher and they saw the stone was rolled away. They wondered, who's going to roll the stone away for us? And they saw the stone was rolled away. And they went in there. There was no, the master wasn't there. He arose from the dead. Man, it makes the hair on my arm stand up. Yeshua had resurrected from death during the night in the wee hours of the morning and they came to the tomb at the rising of the S-U-N sun and they encountered the rising of the S-O-N sun. I'm not trying to be funny when I say that, but that's biblical. That's what happened. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father Yahweh. So, preview for next week. Um, if I preach next week, Brother Jerry has the pulpit if he'd like it. So we'll, I'll talk later with him about that through the week. But Next time I preach, I want to give a small preview. Here's some questions I hope to answer in the next message or in the next couple of messages. 
was the first day of the week that the empty tomb was found an Easter Sunday? We'll talk about that question. Number two, how soon did early Christians begin keeping a new Christian Pasha instead of the Hebrew Pesach? And number three, did the earliest Christians celebrate the Pesach? I hope to discuss these things in my next lesson. I think some of the answers you might be familiar with, others may surprise you. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Before the service, Brother Ron brought to me the ironic blessing of Numbers chapter 6. And he suggested that we close out the service with this. And I, and I believe I will start doing this. And what Brother Ron doesn't realize is that my dad used to do this when he preached. This is a blessing upon, upon us today. Now may Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. It truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray that you would help me and every saint in here, every person in here, to follow where your word leads. Let us never believe that we have figured everything out and we can't learn. Father, keep us humble. I pray that you would humble us and help us to accept your truths even when they go against what we think or what we already currently believe. Father, I love truth. I only want it. I pray that you continue to lead and guide me and my wife and my children and everybody in this congregation with the Holy Bible, which through your Son, the S-U-N of righteousness, we pray.